Well, this morning we are continuing in this journey that we've begun in a book of Ephesians. We're in 28 weeks in now. We've made it into chapter 5. And for those of you that may be joining us for the first time this morning, this has been uh, kind of an epic little study. We've done things a little bit differently. We love to preach and teach through Scripture. Our whole heartbeat as a church is that we want you to have a love affair with God's Word. We have a very high um, kind of uh, picture of the authority of Scripture. Uh, Our whole goal on Sunday morning is to just to talk through God's word so that you begin to have this love affair with it and want to mix your life up in it and study it and read it and know it. Uh, We want you to measure everything that comes out of my mouth or when Brandon's preaching out of his mouth up against the word of God. So we want to walk through scripture. And when we do that, we come across things that are hard. It's really easy to pick and choose and preach through scripture messages and sermons that, that coincide with things that we may be dealing with or that are easy to talk through. But when you begin to work through lengthy pictures of text, you run into things that are hard. We're going to run headlong into some of those this morning and into next week. Ephesians chapter 5 is interesting, right? Um, Because the first part of the whole book of Ephesians is is really about theory and practice. It's really just about the theology behind what Paul is getting ready to call the church to do. And it's the forging of two different people groups, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, now learning that they are one new family. They have been pressed into one new body in which Paul actually calls them a new race of people. They are one. They are just believers, Jewish believers, Gentile believers, now all followers of Christ. And it was a a crazy thing for them to try and understand because for thousands of years, these two groups have been pushed apart. They weren't allowed to worship together. God had kept them intentionally separate because his people, the Jewish people, were marked by God as a demonstration of his love to the world. And they weren't called to mix or to uh, kind of get involved with the outside cultures and world because as the Jewish people did, it tended to infiltrate them. They would want to worship the gods that other cultures wanted. They wanted the things that other cultures wanted. And God said, I am your God. And he separated those people and called them to follow him only as a beacon of light and hope to the world. Well, Christ comes, right? Reconciles all of humanity that profess faith in Christ into one new people group, and the Jews and the Gentiles are thrust together. And so Paul's whole first part of this letter is about the theology behind this idea, right? You are now one. And the first part of chapter 4 begins with this concept of unity. He says that everything that we do now has got to be about unity. It's about us together as one. And he begins to talk about the church. It becomes very practical. And this unity is really about developing the fullness of the body of Christ. That the full measure of Christ is going to be demonstrated to the watching world by how the church interacts and loves one another. And then in the second part of chapter 4, he starts getting into the real nitty-gritty. He starts talking about anger, right, and the things that come out of our mouths and how we live and how we love. And then as we stepped into chapter 5, he pushed us a little bit deeper, and he said that we, as a practical side of living out our theology and our unity, have got to become imitators of God. And last week we talked deeply about this, what it means to imitate God in our behavior and the way that we act, what it means to imitate God in the way that we forgive, and what it means to imitate God in the way that we love, right? Well, this week, Paul's going to be taking that one continuation step forward and breaking that down even more. And he's going to use two verses in three and four. And I've actually split them into two separate little sermons because there's, there's two lists in here of three things each. And we're going to attack each one of those lists uh, this week. And then we're going to attack the, the second one next week. Um, and we're going to break down this idea of imitation into some very practical, real things. And the things we're going to talk about this morning are hard. And they're a little bit mature in the scope because Paul is going to be talking about things like sexual immorality and impurity 
and greed, things that are, are on the mature end of our landscape. And I'm going to be addressing them in that way. And so for some of you, you may want to earmuffs it, right? Because we're going we're gonna to talk about some tough things. But um, there's really no way to shape this down because it would be really easy to just skip over this and jump to chapter four. Uh, or verse three, or verse four, and skip chapter, or verse three. Excuse me. It'd be easy to do that, but we got to deal with it. And that's the challenge of really wrestling with scripture. We've got to deal with the difficult portions, even when they're the ones that we don't want to hear. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first part of uh, this little two-part series. It's going to cover verse 3 and 4 in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to talk about things that take place inside the heart this morning. And then next week, we're going to talk about the things that come out of our mouths. So how those things in our heart begin to affect the things that we say and how we say it. But this morning, we're going to focus on things of the heart and how to rid ourselves of cancers True, real, spiritual cancers that begin to attack our heart, that affect our marriages, and affect our lives. And we're going to be looking at a whole verse today. One whole verse. And we push ourselves through this study. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to break down this first part, this first list, if you will, of what the Christ follower, the believer, those that are thrust together in unity in this body of Christ, have got to rid their hearts of in order to truly imitate him and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the fact that your word is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. You tell us that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It is the very breath of God. The Greek word for that is the theopunestos. It is the breath of the living God. Lord, this is not a guidebook for our life. It's not a series of suggestions that we keep in our pocket for when life is hard. This is the very love letter of who you are poured out in its pages. It has both the beautiful and the tragic all wrapped up in it. It is both easy to understand and beautifully complex at the same time. It calls us to deal with things that we, we want to deal with, and it calls us to deal with things that we don't want to deal with. In fact, it calls out our sin. It shaves off the calluses and exposes wounds at times. And so, Lord, this morning as we open your word and we begin to embrace what it might mean to carve things out of our heart that are poisoning us, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning and just ask in this, this short verse, in these small, seemingly small things, that God would do something powerful in your heart, that he would just teach you. Just whisper that to the Lord this morning. Lord, teach me through your word. As we do each week, take a moment and just pray for someone around you. Maybe it's your husband or your child or a friend, or maybe you're here for the first time and you just don't know anybody. Just pray for the guy or the girl that's in front of you. God knows who they are. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. We say this each week, everything unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Care about the spiritual movement and growth of the people around you and just pray that God would move in them. So pray for that person. Pray that God would teach them, that he would convict them, that he would draw them in, that they would leave here encouraged. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified through your word, that you would teach our hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians 5, 3, and 4 are two small lists. They're actually forged together. They're better understood together, but we're going to separate them for the sake of time and depth this morning. So I'll be a little bit touching on the ones from uh, next week ones. I'll, I'll come back a little bit so if, uh, we can kind of connect them a little better. But this morning, we're going to focus on the first part. 
Ephesians 5 chapter or verse 3. And, and really in these two things, we're talking about two big pieces of our lives. The things that go on in our heart and the things that come out of our mouths. And so this morning's focus is on what goes on in our heart. So as we get, come across lists like this in the Bible, right? Things that we can't have. Uh, we're going to look at in just a moment. Things that we need to cut out of. Things that we need to not do. It's important for me to remind you of two, two things that are incredibly valuable before we begin talking about lists. Because our nature as believers, or even as humans, is to think that, that there is a, a direct correlation between us doing things and the way people respond and or love us. So if I do X, then this person shows me this back. So if I, if I do this activity or I do this thing, then my wife tells me she loves me. Or if I do this, my dad is proud of me. So there's a direct correlation between doing something and receiving something. We naturally translate that a lot of times to our relationship with God. If I do this, he will do that. If I get these things out of my life, he will love me more. If I try really hard, he will see my effort and he will, he will reward me. And we have this sort of performance-driven mentality when it comes to our understanding of, of God. And the problem is it's just theologically bankrupt. You can never do anything to earn or merit God's love. You can't do anything to further his justification of you. You can do nothing to earn his uh, love, grace, mercy. So we have to divorce those two things. And so this is the two disclaimers I want to say first before we start this whole little list and, and even going into next week is that these things are not prerequisites for salvation. So when we talk about cutting sexual morality or impurity or greed out of your life, it's not a prerequisite to be saved. Meaning you don't have to master these things in order for God to redeem and save your life. So if you are wrestling in one of these areas, you don't have to figure it all out first before God will save you. Salvation is freely through Jesus Christ. We learned all this in Ephesians 1 through 3, that no matter what you do, that if we confess our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are saved, it is final, and we are clutched in the hand of God Almighty, right? So our activity or getting rid of sin in our life is not a prerequisite for salvation. We are saved even as full-blown sinners. Now, because of that salvation and what we've been given in Christ, we want to rid our lives of the things. So then this ridding is a response to our salvation. So I want you to be a little bit encouraged. You're sitting this morning, you're going, I've wrestled with some of these things for 30 years, right? I want you to understand that they are not a prerequisite for being saved. You can very much be saved. We know that Paul is actually writing to saved believers, Jews and Gentile Christians. He is writing to them, telling these saved believers to rid their lives of these things. Therefore, this morning, he is telling us as saved believers, we are called to rid our lives of these things. The second thing I want you to see is that these things are incredibly pervasive in Christian culture, right? These things have been around for two thousand years. So the reason that Paul's addressing it is because it's, per, it's pervasive and it's a problem. So you don't pull your kid aside and have a little talk with them about something that, that's not affecting their lives. When you pull your child aside and you begin to have a little talk with them, you're telling them about something that they're dealing with. That's not how we treat people, right? That's not how we do this. Or in this situation, this is not how you talk to your mom. Like whatever those things are, we don't pull them aside and go address something that's not an issue. The New Testament and the Old Testament are the same way. The prophets and the writers of the New Testament are pulling aside these, these believers, these followers of, of Christ, these, these Christians, these people, and they're saying, listen, these things are happening in your life, and I want you to address them because God has something different for you. 
So I want you to understand this. Be encouraged. The greatest Christian that ever lived, whoever that was, still wrestled with these six things. It's just real. So if you're fighting a battle with them in your heart this week and next week, be encouraged. Paul's addressing it because it's a problem, right? He's not putting shame on you. Because a lot of these things that we're going to talk about, sexual morality and purity, they're shame-ridden things. Okay? Shame has no part in the kingdom of God. God is a deliverer of shame. He takes us out of those things. Therefore, if other people have wrestled with it, I'm wrestling with it. You're wrestling with it. We're all wrestling with it. Let's work together to rid our lives of these cancers. Right? So, so be encouraged. Don't be discouraged. Okay, all that to say, let's jump into this list because it's a doozy. So this is what chapter 5, verse 3 says. It says, uh, remember, we're coming on this idea of being imitators. Being imi- be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Right? Verse 1, live a life of love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us. Verse 3, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So verse 3 is jam-packed full of difficult things. So he's addressing this body of believers, these people that he adores, and he says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, of impurity, or of greed. And he says impurity of any kind. So we've got this list, these things that take place in the heart, and there's three things. We see them right there. Not a hint of sexual immorality, not a hint of impurity of any kind, and not a hint of greed. So let's look at those things for a moment. What is sexual immorality? Like, really, what is it? Well, the easiest and most kind of uh, transparent definition is simply this. Any sexual immorality is any sexual activity that takes place outside of the sanctity of marriage. So any sexual activity that takes place outside the sanctity of marriage is what the Bible constructs as sexually immoral. Any sexual activity outside of the sanctity of marriage. So that then begs the question, what is marriage? Now back in Hebrews, uh, about a year ago, we were in the book of Hebrews and we did this sort of in-depth look because he, the book of Hebrews tells us to honor marriage. And you can go back and listen to that. It's like, uh, I don't know, back in January of 2022, we talked about this in length. So I'm just going to brush on it a little bit. And I won't give you all the references because they're all there. We've already all done it. But marriage, by definition, is the joining together of one man and one woman in which the two become one flesh. Okay, so these are the definitions we're working with. I didn't make them up. They're extremely biblical. From the moment of, the, of creation through the last verses of Scripture, through the words of God himself, through the prophets, and even through the echoing of Jesus, these are God's definitions. They're not mine. So sexual immorality is any sexual activity that takes place outside the sanctity of marriage, and marriage is between one man and one woman in which the two become one flesh. Now, we live in a culture that will basically call you a bigot or hateful for sticking to a definition of marriage that says what I just said to you. It will tell you that. And you are going to have to live with that your whole life, and your children are going to have even a more difficult time living with that their entire lives. The more we go forward as a culture, the more that definition will be discouraged and attempted to be erased from our lexicon. 
But remember this. It's not hateful. It's just biblical. You didn't make it up. I didn't make it up. We're not trying to do anything other than honor what God has said from the creation of time, which is, this is what my design for sexuality looks like. Sexual activity is a gift that is given by God to take place inside the sanctity of marriage, which is between a man and a woman when they become one flesh. That is God's perfect and beautiful picture. Didn't make it up. You didn't make it up. But it was a problem. It was a problem enough for the Ephesians because Paul needed to address it. Things were happening outside of the sanctity of marriage. And so Paul stops the church and he says, listen, there must not even be a hint of this in you. As a follower of Christ, listen, nothing sexually needs to be happening outside the picture of marriage. Now that's hard to swallow, right? Culturally, it's an impossible task to even think about. But for the believer, what we have to understand is God is not causing us, saying this so that he would cause us not to engage or have fun. God is protecting the hearts of his people. and He has created something beautiful, and he's given us the context in which that beautiful gift is to be used. When we talk about sexuality, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a God that's trying to, to hold us back. We're talking about a God who is giving us his fullness. And that fullness has a design, and that design is incredible. Now, that being said, right, we have to deal with the reality that that is incredibly countercultural, and how much easier it is to go along with culture than to stand up for biblical definitions of things. We don't want to be called out, we don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be the one that people point fingers at. Nobody does. But part of following Christ is standing on the authority and truth of Scripture even when it's inconvenient and even when the world says that can't be true. So Paul looks at this group of people and he says, among you, as imitators of God, there can't even be a hint of it. Sexual immorality is a cancer of the heart. I'll tell you why in a moment. Second thing on that list is there must not even be a hint of any kind of impurity. So we're continuing in this vein of talking about things that are sexual in nature. That's where Paul is going. Impurity is actually in that same thought process. But it takes the idea from just merely an act to something that we begin to think on. So if sexual immorality is the act, right, it is the act of sexual activity outside the sanctity of marriage, which is between a man and a woman in which they become one flesh, then impurity is what takes place in the mind, in the heart. Impurity is something that is wholly more than just the activity or engagement in activity. It's why Paul's covering it. In case you've decided in your head that you have not actually engaged in the act right? You're not off the hook because just not doing something doesn't mean it's not poisoning our hearts and our minds. Just because you haven't committed adultery does not mean that your heart isn't poisoned, right? Remember when Jesus begins to talk about things like, you know, if you think and hate your brother, it's like you've murdered him. Like the idea is more than just the physical act of something. It's what begins to transpire in our heart. An impurity of any kind is a cancer. Now these Ephesians, they had a wild culture. I mean, if you are a history buff at all, all you've got to do is read up on Greek or Roman history and you'll realize that they lived in a very immoral, sexualized society. 
everything in that culture was about some type of immoral sexual behavior that took place around the worship of things. So if you remember from our first few studies, the book of Ephesians in chapter 1, we talked about the idea that in that city, that incredibly big trade city, that centered around the worship of a goddess named Diana or Artemis. And in that worship, as most Greek and Roman cultures, that goddess had a temple. In that temple, they made sexual sacrifices. It was a part of culture. And it wasn't just for those that went to the temple. It was for anyone as they passed through. Culture was immoral, and it was sexualized to an extreme. And not just in Ephesus, but all over the Greek and Roman world. It was a part of who they were. But I will tell you this, if you were to transplant every single one of those Ephesians and you were to sit them in our culture right now, what we have access to and what our folks and our people and our children are exposed to would make the Ephesians blush. Think about it. Think about how the immoral sexualizing of culture has creeped its way into our very lives. It's just Instagram reels, right? Just TikToks. TV, movies, at the fingertips of every single one of us, on every single phone, right, is access to the most pervasive, horrific, awful, sexualized pornography that has ever been in the world. And it is at the fingertips. The things that our seven and eight-year-old kids are seeing, the things that our teenagers are bombarded with on a daily basis, that have transpired just in the past eight years is unbelievable. I mean, for those of you that are over 40, right, maybe over 45, think about how difficult it was for you to find content that was sexualized, right? VHS tapes, you had to go to a store, you had to do something, you had to work for those challenges. It's at the fingertip of every child that has a phone Every adult that has access to the internet, impurity has poisoned and is poisoning our culture and it's poisoning our children. I don't say that lightly. I say that strongly because we can't close our eyes and pretend it's not there. So what Paul says is there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or a hint of impurity among you. So how do you begin to fight against impurity when it seems like it's in the the molecules of the air that we breathe? Well, there's, there's two real ways, right? You fight for it inside your marriages and you fight for it outside of your marriages. Inside our marriage is exactly what it sounds like. It's for those of us that are married. You fight impurity inside your marriage by fighting against infidelity and adultery. You fight against the things that poison intimacy. You fight against the things that begin to poison hearts, create distance. You actively fight. You fight to win your marriage, not choose what's easier. The grass always looks greener on the other side. It never is. We fight for the sanctity of what is honored by God that he had created in which one man and one woman become one flesh. You fight for the heart of your spouse. You fight for their identity and you care more about them than you do yourself. You don't sexualize sex as a, or you don't weaponize sex as a, as a weapon to be used in fights and wars, but you fight for the heart of the person that you call your husband or wife. Right? You wage war against the cancer of impurity. 
You do that inside of your marriages. We also do it outside of our marriages. And what that means is exactly what it sounds like. For those of you that aren't married, not married yet, or may not ever be married, you still fight impurity. It means that if sexual immorality truly is the idea of sexual acts that take place in the confines of marriage, and the sanctity of marriage, then you fight to keep those things there. It means that you can remain and are called to remain pure even if you're not married. It means that you fight for your own heart. You fight to rid yourselves of the things that are drawing you into a culture that says that sexual activity in these ways is okay or even filling my life or my mind or my heart with these things. You begin to fight to keep your own life pure. For those young people that are here that are in dating relationships, right, or you just have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you fight to keep what is pure, pure. You draw specific lines. You make deep decisions. You decide that your life and your body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God, we learned that in Ephesians already, chapter 3, that my body is the dwelling place of God, and therefore I will honor it in the way that I am in relationships. And I will honor it the way that I am when I'm alone. That even when it's just me, nobody else is around, I'm not going to poison the temple of God with the impurity of a sexualized world. I'm going to say, God, you've created this thing for the beauty and context of marriage, and I want it to remain there, and therefore help me fight against the poisons of the world that are at my fingertips. Inside and outside of our marriage, we fight against the cancer of impurity. Right? So there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, a hint of impurity. Listen to what else he goes on to say. There must not even be a hint of greed which is a weird one, right? You're ready for the third one, which should be this other big thing, like this big sexual thing. It feels like that's where it's going. But he just says, and there must not be even among you greed. But if you really think about it, right, it makes total sense. Because greed is a cancer of the heart. A greed lives in a world of scarcity and want. Greed believes, right, that I need more. And if you look at the context of sexual morality or impurity, it's a part of me that says, I need more pleasure, or I deserve more of this, or I should have more of this from my spouse, or I should get more of it from the internet, or I should have more of this, or I should get more things that give me gratification. Or I should be about making sure that what feels good to me is what I pursue. Greed says, I want because God is not enough. Now, I'm sure Paul also meant these things in a material standpoint. That's how we think agreed, right? Like, hey, listen, I've got one, but I need two. I've got two, I need four. I've got four, I need eight. We tend to think about greed in those material sort of grabbing, that sort of hungry, hungry hippo kind of mentality. Just keep jamming the tail of that thing if you grew up with that game. All right? I'm old. It's an awesome game, by the way. Started, my brother and I busted lips over that thing. But the whole concept is I'm going to get as many as I possibly can as fast as I can so that you can have none because I deserve more. It's never enough. The game essentially is four plastic hippos trying to get as many marbles as they can, and your goal is to let nobody else have any so that you can have them all. Greed lives that way. It just basically says it's never enough for me. If you've ever wrestled with anything on the impurity side, basically it's saying it's never enough, right? 
I mean, I'll go this far, but not that far, but that far, but not that. And then it just keeps leading until eventually that greed that just says, I need more and more and more and more, creeps its way into your life like a slow-burning cancer. And I don't use that term lightly. I use it exactly how it says it and how it is. It is a cancer of the soul. It begins to slowly creep its way in, and on day one, you feel fine. On day two, you feel fine. 12 months in, you're feeling okay. 13 months in, you're a little indifferent. 18 months, you begin to feel kind of sick. And by 24 months, you're almost at a place where you don't know what to do. Greed, at its core, says God is not enough for me. I need more. So when you're dealing with things like sexual immorality and impurity, basically you're saying, God, you are not enough for me. I need to supplement my sexuality with what's out there. I need more of the world, more of that thing, whether that's a pornography or whether it's adultery or infidelity or emotional, whatever. I need more. I deserve more because the things and people in my life are not giving me enough. You don't know how many people come down and sit with me in my office over all these years, 26 years of doing ministry, and they sit there as a married couple where the husband will sit with me and say, Treb, I'm not happy. She does not give me enough. I give so much, I deserve more. And the wife will come in and say the same thing. He does not give me enough. I give so much, I deserve more. I look at them both and I say, I don't care. I'm a horrible counselor, by the way. (laughs) Because marriage and this idea about I deserve and I should get is where it's broken. It's just greed. It's just saying because I've given, I deserve. Think about if that's how Christ treated you. Hey, I've given, I deserve. (sighs) We're all going straight to hell if that's the case. Marriage is about mutual sacrifice. The problem is if nobody's sacrificing, right, then it's just a mutual grab for stuff. And a lot of times that's emotional taking. It's all kinds of other things. But at the core, it's just greed. It's just saying, I deserve. Greed is a cancer of the heart because essentially it says, God, you're not enough for me. I'm going to supplement what you've given with what the world says I should have. But here's the incredible thing in all this, right? is that God has given so much more than enough. He has given his very self. He didn't just say, I'll give you all the tools. He didn't just say, I'm going to give you all the energy. I'll give you all the power, all the strength. He says, I will give you my very self in the person of Jesus Christ. He now dwells in you. The Holy Spirit fills you. You have abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine. So greed is a lie that the devil slips into our life to tell us that God is not enough. And he doesn't say it like that, right? Because if he led with that, none of us would ever follow. Hey, God's not enough. You should just like, yeah, go, no, go away. But he doesn't. He slips it in. He says, you deserve more. Look how hard you're working. All right? Other people's marriages, look what they're doing. Their sexual life together is perfect. Look what his wife gives him or her husband gives her. You deserve that. She won't do it. Find it somewhere else. Hey, look, everybody struggles with this. It's not a big deal. That's the begin of the great exchange that the enemy 
lobbies into our mind. And that greed is a slow burn because none of us would admit that we're greedy. Not a single one of us in this room would say we're greedy. So why is Paul bringing it up? Because we're greedy, right? He's not bringing up something we don't struggle with. But here's the kicker in all of this, right? It's not just like work to get it out of your life. He says very specifically, among you, there must not even be a hint, a whisper of sexual immorality, of impurity, or of greed. Not a hint. Do you know what it takes to get to a place where there's not a hint of that in your life? It takes a full-blown war against those things. It takes all the spiritual leverage that you have, right? All the spiritual chemotherapy, all the things that it takes to rid your life of that. It takes you getting involved in the word and in prayer and deciding that today is a day you decide this is not happening anymore. And I'm drawing those lines and I'm fighting for something better and I'm not letting the enemy ruin my life and my marriage and my heart. Today I begin anew. And I'm going to use the full slate of tools available to me. There's a little kicker here at the end that's pretty interesting, right? Not even a hint of these things. Sexual morality, impurity, greed. And he says this, tags this on. For these, right, are improper for God's holy people. None of these are proper, right? For these are improper for God's holy people. What is Paul saying there? Is he saying that we don't get involved in sexual morality and impurity and greed because good Christians just don't do that? That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying something much bigger than that. And you got to go back a little bit. We've talked about this a, a zillion times, but I'm going to mention it again because it's important. But you got to go back to understanding who you are. And he actually calls the Ephesians and you and I as, as followers of Christ that are reading this letter, he calls us something very specific. God's holy people. So he says these things, sexual morality, impurity, greed, are improper for God's holy people. Not because good Christians don't do those things. They don't smoke, drink, cuss, or gamble, right? What does it mean to be God's holy people? Well, this is what I've talked about over the years, many, many, many times. When we talk about the idea of holiness, we're talking about something very specific. We tend to think about holiness as this idea of piety, right? Like holy is like this perfect morality thing where, I mean, you know, you have this, uh, the Pope is holy or whatever, which you all know that's not true, but the Pope is holy, right? Or this pastor's super holy and we hold them in this great high regard because they're a mega church pastor and then next thing you know, you read the paper, they're not all that great. You know, like we hold these people in these regards so we think that holy means pious, moral. It's not what it means at all, actually. Not even close. The idea of holiness comes from this Hebrew idea that comes out of the book of Leviticus where God tells his people, he says, be holy because I am holy. And he uses the word kadosh. The word kadosh, right, in the Hebrew means set apart. So he says, you are holy or you are set apart because I am set apart. You are my holy people because I have set you apart for a holy purpose. He's not saying you are holy because you are great. The Israelites were anything but great. They were mediocrity and, and just in their formation of who they were. They were fickle. They were liars. They worshiped other gods. They wandered as soon as God just seemed to be a vacant for 12 minutes. Just read any part of the Old Testament that Israelites were anything but faithful. 
They were anything but holy. But God said you are holy because he means you are set apart. When God calls someone, they are set apart. The idea of following Christ is this. You've been set apart. This is the idea of the church. The church has been set apart for a holy purpose. And what's that purpose? We've been talking about it all 28 of these weeks. The church is the instrument by which God is going to demonstrate and is demonstrating the fullness of Christ and the full measure of Christ to the entire world. Why he wants to use this broken group of people, I have no idea. Seems like there's a thousand better ways. But this is what God chooses to do. He chooses to use this, this kind of broken group of people that get formed together in the church, this group of Israelites, this group of uh, Gentiles from all different walks of life, crams them into one place, and he says, I love creation so much that I redeem them, create them as one new people, and they become the full expression of my love to the world. The disciples are a great picture of this. I'll take that tax collector. He's a cheater. I'll take that fisherman who can't catch fish. I'll take that guy who can't read, and that one with a bad accent, and that one, I don't remember his name. Pull them together. And these guys are going to tell the world about who I am. Look at this place. Have you ever looked around you? These are all people nobody else wants, right? We're all people from other churches that didn't like us or we didn't like them. Go to our new member class every single time. It's like, oh, we left here, here. They told us to leave or whatever. And it's all, I, we get everybody else's. I love it. I'll take it. Why? Because this is what the church is. It's just people that are broken trying to figure out how to follow Christ in a set-apart way together. It's been the picture since day one. And I don't say that lightly. I really mean it because this becomes the picture of what it means to be set apart. People that can't do it on their own, that have been saved only by the grace of Jesus Christ, that have been called into community together to love each other in a way that together the world sees something wholly different. The same reason that Jesus looked at the disciples after he washed their feet and he said, I'm going to give you a new command. Love one another as I've loved you. By this, all men will know you're my disciples. He told them the world would know they followed Christ by how they loved each other. In other words, they were going to be so set apart, their love would be so distinctly different that the entire world would go, whoa. Whoa. He didn't say they're going to know you follow me because of your moral aptitude. Because you guys are never going to make a mistake. You're never going to do anything wrong. You're going to have no sexual morality, no impurity, no greed. And everyone's going to look at you and be like, those guys are perfect. He said they're going to know because you love each other different and you've been set apart. That becomes this picture, right? That he says it's improper, these things, for not because we don't do bad things. Every single one of us in here is a believer. and We've all done bad things. In fact, these three things you are fully engaged in, whether you probably want to admit it or not. We do bad things. We do immoral things. Heck, some of you did them before you got here. But the difference is we recognize that we've been set apart. We've been called out of that to wage war against it. And we've been set apart from a people that treats those things differently. We wage war against them to rid our lives from them. Why? Because we've been set apart and called to live different than the world. The whole point of what Paul's saying is that it's improper for you because God has set you apart to live different from culture, not to live a part of it. You are in it, but you are not of it. It's why we stand on a biblical definition for things like marriage. 
not because I'm looking for a fight with people or with culture. It's because Scripture says it clearly. And I've been set apart in a way that says I have to honor Scripture above culture. And that is hard. And I don't like it all the time, and it's not easy. But you've been set apart, and therefore there are things that are improper for those that have been set apart because God has done something wholly different in you. So yes, there will be a day, and a day is today, when culture says pornography is fine, infidelity is fine, get married four or five times, do what pleases you. Go be happy. You only have one life. That is what culture will tell you. But that is improper for God's people because they have been set apart to live in a way that honors God's word above all things. Therefore, I will fight instead of giving in. Yeah, marriage is hard. So I'm going to fight to keep mine in which God has created as opposed to just tossing it out and trying to find another. I'm going to pursue most literally the joy and happiness of my wife over the joy and happiness of myself. I want to sacrifice. I'm going to live in a way that carves out the sexual morality and the impurity and the greed. You see what Paul is saying. He's not saying good Christians don't do bad things. He's saying there are no good Christians. We all do bad things. But we've been saved and redeemed and set apart. So together, let's wage war on the cancers of our heart. That's what Paul is saying. And next week, what we're going to see is he's going to say, it's not just what takes place in your heart, it's what comes out of your mouth. And you may not want to show up for that one because that one's hard. <laughs> Maybe a good time for a little family vacation. <laughs> that's hard, man. It's one thing to hear these things and nod along and just say, yeah, man, I need to get rid of that. It's another thing to say, boy, I speak in a way that hurts the hearts of the people around me. It's convicting. So today, as we walk out of this place, I want you to not be ashamed. I want you to not be embarrassed. I want you to not feel broken. I want you to feel encouraged. Believers for 2,000 years have wrestled with these things. They have had hard marriages. They've fought for these things. They've had broken relationships with things that were cultural. They've had wrestles with impurity and sexualized things. It's part of the nature of living. But it doesn't mean we have to succumb to it. Today is a new day. His mercies are brand new. God can redeem and restore your heart, your marriage. There is nothing that is beyond his control and his ability to redeem and restore. So do not be discouraged. Be encouraged. Today is a new day. Stand up, fight, get rid of whatever it is, and say today is the day I start new, not because I have to, not because I can, but because I get to. Because among us, there should not even be be a hint. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth and the reality of Scripture. That these things, while hard to deal with, are also really powerful. They're honest. They're challenging as all get out, but God, they are good for our heart. You didn't write these things so that life would be harder. You wrote these things so that we would have this full relationship with you in which you empower us. You are the strength by which we can redeem and restore marriages, by which we can kick impurity out of our hearts and out of our lives, by which we can take greed and say, I'm not going to let the enemy tell me that you are not enough, God. You are always enough. So, Lord, let us be men and women and families that fight, not because good Christians don't live that way, but because there are no good Christians. They're just broken people redeemed by a great, 
great, great God. And so, Lord, you have set us apart. You have called us holy, not because we're morally perfect, but because we have been chosen by you, set apart due to nothing on our own, to live in a wholly different way that honors you, stands up in the face of a culture that will tell us we're hateful or bigoted, and says, I choose to honor the Lord. So, Lord, take our hearts and those of us that are struggling this morning with any of these things, those of us that are discouraged with our lives or our marriages or the, maybe the lack of our marriages or just the fact that we don't know what you're doing or wrestling with a specific behavior that is harmful or hurtful and we know it. Lord, let us walk out of here encouraged that you are a God who knows, you are a God who redeems, you are a God who forgives, you are a God who rebuilds. And so, Lord, let us not become content with where we are, but fight for where we know you will take us. For we love you and we thank you for Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and close our time in worship this morning. Sin shall never be our master. Captives of thy blessed grace. Offering our lives hereafter. We resolve to seek thy face. Sin shall never be our master, captives of thy blessed grace, offering our lives hereafter, we resolve to seek thy face.
As a quick reminder, if you came in a little late, if you are available today at 3.30, Jenny and our Vine Kids team would definitely need your help as we transform this place uh, for VBS that starts on Monday. It is not too late for you to sign up or bring kids, friends, whoever. We'd love to have them. Even if you just want to show up at 5 o'clock on Monday with them, that is great with us. So if the neighbor kids want to come, put them in the back of the car, the back of the truck, or that's what we used to do. Load them up, drive them down here. We'd love to have them. But walk out of this place encouraged. No matter what you're wrestling with or struggling with or where you are, nothing is beyond God's redemptive reach. Fight. Today is a day to begin anew. If it feels overwhelming, start with one thing at a time. Fight to rid yourself of sexual morality, impurity, greed. Don't let the devil lie to you. Because among us, there must not even be a hint. Go in peace.